Good morning. Welcome to Southbridge. If you are a guest, we're so glad that you chose to be with us on this uh, this weekend where most choose to find rest. And um, if you're watching online, we just watched a promotion for an event called Civilians First Responders, and you're invited to be a part. You can register for this event right after the service and computers in the lobby. We'd love for you to be a part of it, men and women. And uh, <clears throat> thinking about such things like human trafficking uh, doesn't bring uh, much joy, does it? And I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but we've got lots of things happening in this world. And for believers and those that don't know Christ, um, for many it causes great worry and anxiety. And we're talking about global events and then local events, and then we have things happening in our own lives. Um, this past week we had a friend, a, a attender of our church who lost a son and is devastated and that affects us, doesn't it? It affects our view. It affects our view of the Lord, and it affects our view of our lives. And we have questions, don't we, when we think about these things, global, local, personal. And I often wonder, is there any way that these, that these events can be redeemed? Do you have those thoughts? And one way to know the answer to that, one way that Christians ought to be informed in their answer is they share with other people and engage one another, and especially those that don't know Jesus Christ, is to give a testimony of God's conduct and character of the past. That's how we learn about what God might be doing in the present and will do in the future. And so this morning, humbly and seriously, we're going to consider the redemptive work of God, past, present, and future. And there's no better time than now, is there, to consider such a thing? So let's pray and ask the Lord to instruct us, and then we're going to continue on in our series in Acts chapter 13. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your generosity toward us in sending your Son. Um, he is who we are praising uh, for his selfless act, his death on our behalf, and we praise you, Father, for raising him. Lord, we... Uh, we struggle often when we consider the events of the world and the things of a corporate nature and a personal nature that are heavy, and we're not sure, Lord, what good can come from it or if anything's even redeemable about it, and God, it challenges our view of you. Lord, would you instruct us this morning? Would you give us a clearer sense of who you are and how you worked and, and work and your character? Would you teach us this morning? Lord, would, would you encourage and convict? Would your spirit have... Freedom, Lord, to be a great surgeon and do a great work in our hearts and minds this morning. So our expectation is that you would love to come through in such things, and our hope is in you to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn to Acts chapter 13 as we continue our series called Movement. It's really a verse-to-verse -verse study through the book of Acts. That's what we've been doing for a while, and we'll continue to do it, Lord willing. And we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 13, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. What we've come to learn so far is that God is causing a great movement, that he's using his people that have trusted in his son, Jesus Christ, to share that message with other people, and people outside of one's comfort zone are coming to know Christ. So now we have Jews and Gentiles and pagans coming to trust in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And that message then is the same message that we share here every week at Southbridge. 
We want to make much of Jesus through our song and through the message. He is our hope. And this morning, we're continuing on with this series. Last week, we were reminded that although all of us are different and God will use us in different ways and have different gifts and abilities, it's really the same thing we're going to be used for. And that's for expanding his kingdom, for making his mission and his uh, namesake known. And so we see uh, some folks beginning on a missionary journey here. We see one who is known as Saul and now Paul and Barnabas traveling and going from one city, uh, Barnabas' hometown, and now moving forward. So let's work hard here through the scriptures this morning, looking at verse 13 of chapter 13. Verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions, so that would be Barnabas and any others, sailed to Perga from Pamphylia, where John, also known as John Mark, who's the author of the Gospel of Mark, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And we'll learn more about John and this desertion in the future, Lord willing. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Verse 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So Paul and Barnabas, they're on this mission. And these other companions that were with them, but there was many others, are on the journey. They're continuing on the road. And we see here that John Mark has has left them. Uh, Pisidia and Pamphylia are, in some other states, make up Galatia. So we have this uh, epistle from Paul called Galatians. It's written to the Christians in this region. In Galatia and a few other big provinces make up Asia Minor. And so what we know is that the gospel is going forward. It's going well beyond the city limits of Jerusalem. Antioch of Pisidia, which is different than the Antioch we learned about a few chapters earlier, Antioch was a common name, was about 100 miles from Perga, and it was 100 miles up, through, and around the Taurus Mountains. It wasn't an easy trip. When I come to learn this, I ask myself, what message would be worth traveling such distances for? What message could you possibly have that you'd want someone to know? And who would be the receivers that would be compelling enough to make you go on such a trip? I remember when uh, a man and I were dating uh, before and around our engagement, we were long distance, we were about 14 hours away, and we didn't have email at that time, so we're getting old. We didn't have a computer in my family's home, and Amanda didn't have one, I don't think. So we'd write by letter, and then we'd call. And that was back in the days where I think um, long distance phone calls were about $10 a minute. But I loved her so much that I'd have my parents pay. (laughs) I had a message that I want her to know, and that was that I loved her. I wanted to hear her voice. And we see here that these folks, Paul and his companions, they go on a great mission, a very difficult mission. In fact, we read in one of Paul's epistles uh, to the Corinthians that he has experienced terrible things, uh, um, just the dangers of rivers and mountains and the fear of bandits. And we know that this route was loaded with bandits. Reminds me of the Wild West. Why would people go to such great lengths to make Jesus known? We have an insight into Paul's mind when he writes to the Roman believers in chapter 10, verse 1. He says he wishes his desire, his heart's desire and prayers that for Israel is that they might be saved. And I think that we can make the same statement based on the events of his life that he has that same heart for all people. He hopes that some might be saved. He says, I'll become all things to all people so that in the end, I might save some. And by saying, I might save some, he really means that Christ would invade a heart, change a life, and that they too would be set on mission. 
So Paul and his companions arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, as we read, they entered into the local synagogue where Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, who we've seen before in previous chapters in the book of Acts, would be gathered. This, the, the synagogue was like the local church for the Jews, and it was just a ready-made audience. And so it was strategic for Paul to go into the synagogue because of his Jewish background and training and begin a dialogue with people that the Messiah has come. The synagogues at this time had a typical flow of service. They had the regular scheduled prayers and then the readings from the Law and the Prophets and then the leaders of the synagogue, like a pastor, would ask someone like a learned rabbi or a learned guest to share what they know related to the, mess- the text that were read or just whatever message they had to share. An interesting way to do church, isn't it? And so here we see these Christians, amazingly enough, are invited to share a word of encouragement. And I asked myself, why? Why would synagogue rulers invite these people who are now saying Jesus is the way to teach? And some, there's some conjecture. Some people wonder because maybe Paul still had on his, his kind of rabbinical clothes or his pharisaical clothes. So maybe they thought he was in with them. Or maybe they, the leaders of this group just uh, thought well of them based on how they spoke before the service started. Maybe they were kind. We don't know. But the invitation was given. Let's ask ourselves this question. You arrive into a strange place where you have a message in your heart and you have a testimony of God's grace in your life and you're asked to share with people that you know don't know Jesus. What would you say in front of a crowd? Now, some of you hate public speaking. I know what that's like. You'd rather be dead than speak. In fact, we know that the fear of public speaking is greater for many people than the fear of death itself. What would you say? Hey, nice to be here. I noticed you didn't have donuts this morning. My church doesn't either. See you you later. What would you say? The text says that Paul stands and motions to the group. We don't know what the motion is. We don't know what he does. But he motions to the group and greets them with a normal greeting. And this is amazing. Because if you know the scriptures and the, and the letters that Paul had written to the early churches, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this, that he wasn't a trained speaker. So I don't know if the group decided at this point, since Paul is the leader of the group, that Paul would be the one to speak. Or everyone kind of looked at each other and Paul just stands up and says, I don't know what I'm going to do, but here I go. We know that he's preached sermons in the past, but we don't have a recorded one yet. So this is the first recorded sermon that we have from Paul. So on mission and driven by love, armed with the Holy Spirit and a testimony of his changed life by the power of Jesus Christ, he stands and speaks. And this morning what we're going to see is that Paul reviews for this group, their common understanding of history. It's a style that we saw Stephen used, who was martyred, if you remember, we studied that, we saw that, and Paul, who was Saul then, saw this and heard this. And we think also that it's the style that Jesus used as he walked on the road to Emmaus with a few people. An historical talk, a talk about God's work in history. And I wondered if Paul was even reviewing some of the text, the very text that were just read right before he stood. And this morning we have a couple assignments. We have two things I really want you to do as we're looking at Paul's first recorded sermon and just looking at the first part of it. We're going to take a couple weeks to go through this sermon. There's so much to look at. And we're looking at the work of God and the unfolding events of history. So there's two things I want you to do. The first is this. I want, I want each of us to lay our life on top of these historical events because I believe there are parallels. And if you do this, I think what will happen is you'll probably experience some conviction. And the second assignment is this. I I want us to each take note of the fact that God works in and through the events of the world. This is really the point of the message. 
that it's that he's working in his history. It's it's God saturates history, and some people say it's his story, a play on the word. That he can redeem and reform even the terrible. That his plans are not bound by the sins and selfishness of, of men, that the selfish desires of people, that his redemptive plan can work in and through that. And that he can turn around those things to accomplish his redemptive plan. So if we're laying our life on top of the historical events and how God worked in them, that might bring some conviction. But if we look and are remembered and reminded of how God working and using things and doing things to accomplish his desired goals, it should bring encouragement. It should be hope-giving. So let's go through Paul's message, just the first part of it, the first few verses, looking at verse 17. So Paul, after greeting the folks and motioning as he does, he says that the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. We know this from the story of Abraham. He chose our fathers and he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. So God chose Israel from all the people of the earth. And it wasn't because Abraham was awesome. He was a pagan. But it's because God's awesome. And he's got a plan. And it's not plan B. Once Adam and Eve sinned, oh, now what am I going to do? And he takes a long time to figure out that he says, oh, I'll pick Abraham. No, he's working his plan. He's working his redemptive plan. So he chooses a people of all the people. And he blesses them in number. He gives them prosperity even during their captivity in Egypt. And as we know, God's people were slaves in Egypt for years and years and years, several hundred years. And then as we've come to learn through God's word, and maybe you remember this even growing up from church, if you did, that God rescued his people from Egypt. He took his own people away from the hand of Pharaoh. He plagues and brought these plagues on Pharaoh's people. He rescued them. He brings them through a divided sea, the Red Sea, closes that sea up and starts leading his people by his might and by his power to a promised land. And every person hearing this message, this first, very first introduction of Paul's message, every person hearing it would have agreed that the work of God is amazing and they would have agreed that God's people are in utter dependence upon him for deliverance. There's a parallel for us, isn't there? See, we all need rescuing. We all need deliverance. Did you know this? That's because we're slaves to sin. We're unable not to sin. No one is capable of righteousness, and no one stands innocent before God. Because of our sin nature, we are born enemies of God. See, we live in a time where people assume innocence until they sin. But the scriptures tell us the other way around, that because sin has entered the world, we are born sinners. We're not sinners because we sinned. We're sinners because we live. It's different, isn't it? There's an identity issue there before Christ invades our life. We are an enemy of God. The scriptures tell us this. So who will save us from such plight? Who will rescue us from the slavery of of sin and selfishness? Who will save us from eternal separation from God? And the answer is, loved ones, Jesus. It's, It's Jesus. God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and today he's still rescuing people from slavery to sin. Jesus came and died, as our worship pastor told us. He defeated death. 
He rose again, and he did so on our behalf. And so whoever will place their trust in him for that work on their behalf will find freedom and salvation. So those that are saved and are heaven-bound are so because Jesus is awesome. (laughs) Paul continues on. Look at verse 18. So if you remember, God has led his people out of Egypt by his mighty power. Verse 18. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. Stop. The scripture tells us that God endured his people's conduct for about 40 years. Your translation might say that he um, bore with them in the wilderness. What was their conduct like for 40 years? Do you know this story? Do you know this account? They'd become famous for their griping and, and their complaining. And many of them, did you know this, wanted to return to Egypt because the food was so awesome. I think I bring this up every other message I preach. The book of Isaiah talks about this. They missed the tasty leeks and onions. Of all the things you could wish for, they wanted onions. We miss the bad breath of onions. See, in the wilderness, God generously provided manna for them, which they made like a, a bread out of. He miraculously provided it. One time, because they complained so much about wanting meat, he brought quail from regions that, this wasn't a quail region, and brought it so high it was like four feet high as far as their eyes could see. He provided water from them, one time out of a rock, I believe. But people got tired of, of that meal. He provided for them for all these years, so he, by his strength, he leads them out of Egypt, and by his care, he's providing for them. Why? Why does he do this? Because he loves them? Yes, of course. But if we're looking at how God is unfolding the events of history, he's preserving them because they were key to his redemptive plan. So he endured their complaining. He endured their statements that it'd be better to be slaves in Egypt than to have to eat this meal one more time. And listen, I speak in significant exaggerations. Ask my wife. But that's a huge thing to say. You remember what it's like in Egypt, right? Yes, but this manna is gross. The truth is that they wanted more, and they wanted different than what God was providing. And the scriptures say that the Lord endured their conduct. I try to put myself in that situation, and all I can do is just think about my family, that sometimes in the middle of a meal, my kids are asking about snack. (laughs) We're still eating the current meal. And they're wondering about snacks, and they're wondering about breakfast the next day, and they want to know if ice cream is available, and they ask me, because they know I have a sensitivity toward ice cream. And then eventually the, the asks and the requests start clawing at you a little bit. Is that right? Maybe you work with a coworker that's a complainer and their complaining just really drives you nuts. Or maybe you have a family member who is, could go pro at griping and it's just killing you. The scriptures tell us that the Lord's response is like a father who is a carrying, a carrying his child. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31 makes reference to this experience. And in the desert, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. Talking about reaching to the promised land. See, I'm not a perfect father, so my responses to my children are not always Holy Spirit filled. I'm out of tune with the Spirit, but the Father who is also Spirit is the Lord. His response is perfect, and his responses are perfect in love and justice. His kids' responses aren't always that great, but his are perfect every time. The idea here is that God carried Israel 
like a father carries a child with care and patience. And, and God was the guide and sustainer in the wilderness. And there's a parallel here then, isn't there? What is it, loved ones? That for those of us that are living this life today in the ebb and flow of life, we walk in the desert, we go through the wilderness, and there's a, not only highs of life, but there's lows of life, isn't there? And usually we don't request the lows of life. Although, ironically, it seems that in the lows of life is when God's doing the most work in us in conforming us into the image of his son. But we don't want the lows of life. We don't want to acknowledge human trafficking. We don't want to acknowledge the things and the effects of Syria or the losses we have in our life. We just want to be above those and not experience those. And as we walk in these experiences today, the Lord will guide and sustain us if we allow him. Even when we fight him, He's still over the events of our life. Some of you may say, you know what? When people talk like that, Jason, I feel like people are just using God as a crutch. And I think there's a a biblically informed response to that. And I think some might do that, I guess, just drop God's name in the bad times as some kind of a crutch. But I would say I'm not simply leaning on Jesus like one leans on a crutch. I'm not leaning, simply leaning on Jesus to get through a difficult time. He's carrying me through both the highs and lows and into eternity, not just till things get better. He's my healer, my everlasting hope. So he's much bigger and eternal than simple crutches. Yeah. So God is not only powerful enough to freeze people from all kinds of slavery, Literal slavery was received from God's people, but the kind of slavery we find ourselves in spiritually want to return to. But he's a patient and caring father, even when we're not deserving such. So for, for the people of the desert, these characteristics of God weren't enough, though. They'd rather be in slavery in Egypt to have their appetites met than be free to follow the Lord's leading and survive on his perfect provision. Does that sound familiar to any Christians here? There's another parallel. See, we want freedom, but we don't want to follow. We want salvation, but we don't necessarily want a savior. We want salvations, but we also want our appetites satisfied, which often leads, ironically, to another form of slavery. We, want our, we worship our stomachs, or we want to worship our sexual appetites. And we want God to meet that. If he won't meet that, then I'm going to go take care of it myself. And we want our appetites for more provision and more power to be met. So we're saying, God, your characteristic is your characteristic, but I want more, and I want different. In my life, my pessimism and my complaining, as annoying as it must be to him, runs directly into the care and crazy patience of our Lord. Why has he not just extinguished the earth when we know that there's more slaves now than ever before as a result of human trafficking? Why? Do you know why? A biblically informed answer might be this, because he's still desiring that many will be saved. So he endures with his children and cares and provides. Even when we're fighting and wanting to push and do our thing, no one can take him out of his hands. And I believe not even his own children can do that. We need God's care and patience, and he is able and ready to provide us as wisdom suggests in the moment. But will we gladly receive what he has to offer? And his own people weren't always interested. Paul continues, look at verse 19. Talking about the Lord, Paul is, he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. The there there is in God's people. God promised his people a land that they'd have to their own, 
but it wasn't just an available land. Other people were living there, but God drove them out. He drove them out by calling his people to battle the people that were there. And some people really struggle with this because they think God is a bully. But they forget God's place, that he owns it all, that it's his to give. And he is perfect in justice and in love. We see that all this took about 450 years. That's part A there. It was God that destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. And every victory is the Lord's. The scripture tells us this in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. And Proverbs are principles, truisms. The Proverbs says this, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So it was God who gave Israel the land of Canaan as an inheritance. He owned it, and it's his to give to his children who trust in him as he desires and he wishes. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 95, I want to read several verses from you from Psalm chapter 95 about what he owns. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. This is what we're about every gathering together. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is of the Lord. This is what Israel experienced. Sometimes fighting, sometimes willing. Regardless of their response, God is doing and unfolding the events of history, moving forward his redemptive plan, and it's his to do as he wishes, and he will come through at his perfect appointed time. So what is true for God's people obtaining the promised land, here's another parallel, is also true for anyone today. Whatever is had was given. Some may say, you know what, I worked hard for this, and I believe that. I believe that some of you work very hard for the things that you have. Who gave you the ability to work so hard? All credit goes to him for every good thing. The scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's a reference to the Lord. But the truth is that we don't always want to give credit to God. So the question has to be asked, will we give him the glory or try to hold it for ourselves? Putting ourselves in God's place. How's that going? Is it criticism toward God when he doesn't come through in the way you want him to come through and praise for yourself when things work out? Paul said all this took about 400, 450 years, just under that. It's a long time, isn't it? I wonder how long I'm going to live. I think about all the things I've experienced in my short life. I'm 36 years old. And sometimes I think God takes too long, like when uh, we were waiting a total of 11 months to receive our son home that we adopted. That was entirely too long, I thought. Or the nine months it's taken for the babies to arrive that we've had biologically. Or trying to find a facility for our church. I have decided in my wisdom that it's too long. And yet God in his wisdom, as he was working things out according to his redemptive plan, allowed his own people to be in slavery for hundreds of years. He's smart, which is an understatement. And I think I'm really smart. Paul's reminding his listeners that God has showed his faithfulness, power, provision, patience, 
and he's provided victory. And that God is moving in history, along with history, in accordance to history, and his redemptive plan is moving forward. Look at the second part of verse 20. After this, part B here of verse 20, after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. When God gave them judges, judges were like deliverers who rose up for special purposes, ultimately to preserve Israel. And you can read about them in the book of Judges. <laughs> so, go ahead. This book is rough. And what you'll see is that God is leading his people into their land, and they're supposed to drive out different groups, and God's people, instead of driving them out, make friends with them and begin worshiping their God, then God saves them. It happens again, then it happens again, then it happens again, then it happens again, and you're going to start seeing um, R-rated, beyond R-rated kind of things in there. But the Lord is working and moving, and he's preserving his people, even though they want to make buddies with pagan worshipers, and they themselves fall into it from time to time. The last judge was Samuel, who was also a prophet. So God was gracious over and over again to his people during this time, preserving Israel according to his plan. But God's people began desiring a king like every other nation had. They were making new friends with other people, and they had kings, and they wished they were like them. It sounds like middle school to me. But middle schoolers grew up to be adults that want what other adults have. And so they wanted a king. In fact, you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. They say, the people say, they want a king like other nations who will go before us in battle and give us the victory. Who gave them victory in Egypt? And who, who gave them victory over the seven groups of people that were already in the land? The Lord, but they don't want him. He's already been doing this and they don't want what he's doing. So guess what? The Lord gives them over to their desires and provides a king, the kind of king that many would want. And I want to read this scripture for you as King Saul is presented before the people. Here's 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 20 through 25. When Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further, Lord, Inquiring of the Lord means asking God to speak into the everydayness of your life. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes. He has hidden himself amongst the baggage. The kind of king that will lead them in battle is the kind they want. Verse 24. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any others. Other scriptures say he was really handsome. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see that the man the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the people. He's so tall and so handsome even though he's a coward. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of kingship because this was their first one and how it's going to go. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people, each to his own home. So God allows people to have what they want and he gives them the kind of king that they would choose based on the standings and um, ways that they think would be good. Is this person tall? He's tall. He's got to be good with the sword then. And is he handsome? He's pretty handsome. Perfect. Get him from the cloakroom. Hmm. See, there's a parallel here, isn't there? See, sometimes God gives us what we want. 
See, it's interesting to me that these people want a king, but they already have a king who is God, and no one could ever compare to God's strength, justice, wisdom, and benevolence. And God is running history here, so his sovereignty simultaneously permits what they foolishly want and accomplishes his redemptive plan. Amazing. (laughs) And the parallel is that sometimes the Lord lets us have what we want. He allows you to run to where you want to go. He allows men to abandon their families and go have affairs. He allows people to ruin their marriages. He allows people to damage other people. He allows this to happen. And he allows his own children to do it, people that proclaim to be wearers of his name, people that proclaim to be Christians. He allows us to chase after lesser things, to turn from him, and he allows people to get to the end of themselves. I remember witnessing this when I saw the show, the Cosby show. I love this show. I th- sometimes I cry when I watch it because I think it's so pure and nice and they're so fun. And there was an episode where Rudy, who was the youngest daughter, wanted the freedom to stay up late to go to bed when she wanted to and to eat what she wanted to and to watch the TV she wanted. So Dr. Heathcliff Huxtable and his wife, Claire, permit. And the episode basically demonstrates that sometimes it's not best to get what you want. And Rudy comes to that understanding. All wrapped up in 30 minutes, a great lesson. And we see that this happens today, that God lets people do what they want to do. My counselor told me, as I counsel people, Jason, God allows people to ruin their lives. See, I'm not a trained counselor, so my style is what do the scriptures say and what's the wise thing to do? And sometimes I feel, because of my love for people I meet with, I want to keep them from doing anything. And I take it as my responsibility to try to stop them. And then I wear their decisions on me as if I was a better counselor, they wouldn't have done that, which is called self-righteousness. That's pride. But the Lord's style is different. Sometimes he keeps people from going places. Like Paul wants to go into Asia. At one point, he doesn't allow him. But sometimes people want to go and do the naughty things. And God says, yeah. He's not saying it's a good thing to do the naughty thing. He's saying, and when you get done with that, I'm right here. In fact, I'll be right with you as you're going. I'll, I'll be right. When you're ready to turn to me, here I am. He's amazing. And God's people experience this over and over again, and Christians today experience this. Look at verse 22. We've got to fly. After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So in time, God removed Saul as the result of his willful disobedience and half-hearted commitment to the Lord. His half-hearted commitment to the Lord is demonstrated by the fact that when he's confronted by his sin, do you know what he does? He justifies his actions and he's defensive. The sin he committed was not killing a pagan king as God has instructed. He consulted a medium instead of talking to the Lord and he failed to inquire of the Lord. Well, then in time, God removes him. The scriptures tell us two things, that Saul fell on his own sword, but also that God brought him home. And then God sets up David. We know the scriptures say that God sets kings and rulers in their place and removes them according to his plan. And I believe that's true today. So don't worry about the kings and dictators and presidents set up. I don't fret over that as if that's going to thwart God's redemptive plan. I don't. I get worried about myself, like what will happen, but I don't worry about the Lord. He's not worried. The prophet Daniel says this, that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets them up. And he also says, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That should give us hope and confidence that God is above it. No one is above him. Chemical weapons are not above him. 
In keeping with placing a king over his people, allowing his people to have what they want, God chooses his person. He raises up David, the son of Jesse, a young nobody, a shepherd boy, who's got um, a slingshot in his back pocket and loves to jam on the harp and write songs. The very kind of person that people wouldn't choose to be a king. A teen. (laughs) But he was God's choice, and the scriptures tell us. So if I were to ask you, why did God choose him? What did the scriptures say? The answer is, because David was one who wanted to do the will of God. And let me say this. David was the most bloodthirsty king. The sins that David committed are the ones that we would say in the local church many times by our conduct are the most heinous ones. Took a man's wife because he wanted her and no one stopped him. And then he tried to arrange it when this woman got pregnant that, his, that this woman's husband would come back and be with her, but that man wouldn't do it because they were in battle. He wanted to be committed to the battle. So since David couldn't control that, he got away with um, setting up the war so that he would go out with his men, this husband of this woman, and when the war was happening on, the rest of the men would pull back and this guy would die. David orchestrated all that, and David is someone who God says is tight with him. But here's why. When David is confronted with a sin, he comes to his senses, and he repents of his sin. See, that's the kind of person who is a human who does sin because they're human. But God is working something up in them. And when confronted with their sin, they say, I am devastated. Forgive me. And so God says, that's my kind of person. But he did the naughtiest things, didn't he? This is so like the Lord, isn't it? To use someone that people would say ought not be used. This is so like the Lord, isn't it, to use the unlikely, writing the unexpected twist in the story as we see it? There's a parallel here, isn't there? He's still using people that others would think aren't skilled or talented enough to be used. He's still redeeming the people that do the naughty, and they start committing themselves to the Lord, and he does awesome stuff to them. One of my favorite preachers, and you can write this name down, is David Ring, R-I-N-G. I heard him as a child. He's got a video on IamSecond.com. You can actually just go to YouTube and do I Am Second David Ring. David Ring was born dead. For 18 minutes, they just placed him on the, a side table. Somehow, he revived, and he had cerebral palsy. Still does. He lost his dad at a young age, and his mom, who is really sweet too, and you'll see this on the, on the I Am Second video, was his life. But he didn't know the Lord and hated God because of the mockery he experienced every day growing up. He believed he had no value, no worth until he meets Christ and his life changed. He becomes this preacher. He's preached in over 6,000 churches in America. He has a wife and was told he would never have children. He's got four. And I've heard this guy speak with my own ears face to face. And the Lord is with him. But he has cerebral palsy, so he can't be used, right? He He can't speak because he's hard to listen to. No, no. Every time I watch this one video, I'm reminded of my past when I heard him in person as a child. And it wrecks me unto worship. But like I'm crying, but I'm worshiping, but I'm not crying tears of joy. So I'm just like crying tears of amazement. And am I crying because I feel bad? No, it's awesome. In God's unfolding of history and redemptive plan, he decides who will be used for his redemptive purposes. So up to verse 23, the listeners would have been enjoying everything that was said, loving every minute of the history lesson of God's deliverance and protection and provision. So they would thank Paul for this message. You're doing just fine. I know you're not a learned speaker, but everything's going okay, is what they'd say. What do you mean you're a trained speaker? 
They'd be worshiping the Lord at the hearing of this. And then comes verse 23, and we have a few minutes left. This is actually the best part of this message, I think, right here. From this man's descendants, who's this man? David, yes, in context. God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Stop. This is where the record, if you know what those are, screeches to a halt. This is where Paul really wants to get to in the message. Everything in history of the, in the history of the world was leading up to the coming of Jesus and the great salvation for sinners that he would accomplish through his death and resurrection. So to see the people in the synagogue here, all good practicing Jews today, are waiting the arrival of the Messiah from the line of David. And they would know the law and the prophets as they were just read in the synagogue. They would know Isaiah chapter 11, where we read that a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. This is a prophecy of the Messiah's righteous rule and everlasting kingdom. But Paul isn't talking about the far past anymore to them or the way distant futures if we're still waiting the Messiah. He's telling them that the Messiah has come. He's talking about recent events. And Paul is teaching these folks that the Savior has come. Later saying in the same message that salvation he provides isn't about political change, but a change of a heart through forgiveness and a justification through faith in him. Paul's telling them that God has done and did and will do what he promised. Nothing's going to stop it. He'd set all these things up for it. He had planned them long ago, and he's promised that it was going to happen, and it's happening. So Paul has introduced these people to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the message worth traveling for. That's the message worth being beaten for, martyred for. This is the important message worthy to cross the mountains that he did with his friends so that some might be saved. And God worked it out that Paul would come to know Christ, be trained, have the friends he has, the courage he has to go on this trip at the specific time so that these people would hear about Jesus. And in time, God ordained that you would hear of Jesus Christ. If you've never heard about him, you've heard about him today. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He came and died and rose again so that whoever would believe in him by that work, place their faith in his work on their behalf, might know and will know salvation. You've just heard about him. And the Lord worked that out. So we have to ask ourselves, what will we do with the message of Jesus? Will we do whatever it takes to share this message like those before us? In the last few verses here, just let me read them for you, verse 24 and 25. We know of one that did went to great lengths to share of Christ. Before the coming of Jesus, John, that's John the Baptist, as we've come to know him, preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one, meaning the Savior. No, he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. At this time, John the Baptist was well known, even though he had been murdered at this point. And Paul is telling them, hey, you think that this person was of great renown. This person who you think was so great is saying that Jesus is the way. So he's using one testimony to verify another. And John the Baptist saying, the one that everyone is waiting for, the one who was promised years and years before, the one that history was aimed for and eternity future features, is Jesus. Last thought. Paul's words of encouragement were words of history, evangelism, and God's redemptive plan. So history truly is his story, and you are part of it. You're not the point of it, but here you are. 
So how ought God's redemptive work and the unfolding events of, pa- of the past inform or shape how we view the present? It ought to, right? This is how we know if someone's trustworthy. We look at their track record. So the truth is this. When we consider all these terrible things in our world today, we need to be looking at the world with the understanding that God, it's God's world. And he made it, he owns it, he works in it, and he is guiding it to its appointed goals. And he can be trusted. He's powerful enough, caring enough, a wonderful provider. He's still working, saving lives, transforming lives, setting up and tearing down kingdoms as he decides and making something beautiful out of the ugly every day and moving forward until Jesus is appointed second coming, until the judgment and for his, his forever reign as king. Be encouraged, be challenged. Let's pray. Lord, for this morning again, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of your amazing grace and faithfulness. Lord, I apologize. I, I confess that I doubt I get worried about my own life and my family or my church. And what's going to happen if these leaders do such and such? And, but Lord, we know that you are in control. Lord, we know that if America were to become a third world country, that there are people today in third world countries that are worshiping you just fine. Lord, would you teach us how to place our joy in you? Would you give us a joy that's regardless of circumstances? Lord, would you give us a, a hope? Would you, you've given us hope. Would you renew our hope? Would you give us the faith to follow you? And that we trust in your sovereignty and that you are accomplishing your plan. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. Thank you for calling us to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would save some today, that people would turn their lives over you today. I pray for those, Lord, that have secret sins, that today would be the day of repentance like David did when he was confronted, and that they would make things right and make amends with those that they've harmed and then follow you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Amen.